and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire, one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benny Fish, and I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. Welcome to our 36th episode of the Not a Cast entitled The Holy Mountain, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 4 in which Danny and the gang arrive at the ancient, arrogant, and empty city of Vase Dothrak, where, in a shocking turn of events, Viserys Targaryen is a fucking asshole. Who could this, have seen that coming? I, I, no one. No one could have seen that coming. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman Zack, and... We're pleased to announce our first lady commander, Jancy O. Thank you, gentlemen, lady, very, very much. Thank you, as always. And welcome to Lady Commander Jancy. So our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. And with this chapter, Daenerys 4, we are officially past the halfway point of A Game of Thrones, the first book in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yay. Yay. Our thanks and love (laughs) to everyone who has listened and supported us so far. And we are, of course, super excited to dig into the second half of the book where shit really gets real. It really, really does. And thank you guys for for listening to us. I I had to check for for another purpose recently, but we had gotten... 240,000 downloads in total. So thank you all who are listening right now and those of you who will be listening to come and thank you for listening to all of our prior episodes. You guys make this really worth it and, you know, it's it's awesome. So thank you guys very much. Jeff said it all. Uh, speaking of your uh, excellent support, our question this week is from Lady Sharla B who asks, After rereading the Feast prologue and analyzing the Alchemist again, I thought of the passage in A Feast for Crows, Arya 2, where Arya sees a vault of old, strange armor and weapons. This is in the House of Black and White. (laughs) Uh, Do you think that since Euron had no problems with kinslaying, and he thinks he can take Danny's dragons, that he could have gotten the Valyrian Steel suit in addition to having Balin killed by the Faceless Men? That's an interesting uh, proposition there. What do you think, Jeff? I never picked up the connection between Arya's seeing that vault of old, strange armor and weapons in Bravos. And the suit of Illyrian steel armor that Euron is wearing on the silence in the Forsaken. That's interesting. That is certainly a possibility. I I still, and I know that this has become less tenable. I think this is like, this, this theory was the one that was primarily held by people until the Forsaken. I still think that Euron is full of shit about going to Valyria. I think that he is still lying about that. I don't think that he actually has a suit of Valyrian armor. And if he does have the suit of Valyrian armor, he got it from the warlocks who are sailing out of Karth because as, well, I'm going to let you talk about, I'm going to let you talk about that part because you had brought that up in pre-production. I apologize. Not um, at all, sir. But, but yeah, so I, I think it's interesting. It's, it's certainly possible. I, I don't see the upswing for the Faceless Men to give Euron a suit of Valyrian steel. I think that they paid their debt in killing Balon and Euron paid the debt by giving them a dragon egg, potentially. I think that's the the theory that I talk about or the theory that I believe in and something we did talk about in our upcoming Stump the Chumps Part 2 episode. So, yeah, I I, I don't know. Uh, Just one note before I, I turn it over to Emmett. The Analyzing the Alchemist series is a uh, essay is an essay that's done by my good friend Florian. It's done on the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire website, and it came out I think back in late 2016 or early 2017. And uh, yeah, if you guys haven't checked that out already, please do. It's fantastic. Florian has a real knack for these things, and uh, he has he still he plans to write continuing parts for that that series, but 
work and other things have have taken up his time in the in the ensuing years since then. But hopefully somebody will be back to analyze The Alchemist just a little bit more. That is a good series I recommend as well. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I overall come down with you that what Euron got from the Faithless Men was a pretty straightforward transaction of a dragon egg for the death of his brother Balin. Specifically, when he says that he threw the dragon egg into the sea, so that's Victorian. I think that's his poetic saying of he, the dragon egg guaranteed that Balin would be thrown into the sea. Right. But yeah, the Valyrian steel armor, who knows if it's legit or not? It's the Euron going to Valyria thing is kind of thrown into confusion after the Forsaken because Euron as a whole is more of a big deal than ever. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean the Valyrian story is true, especially given right. how he reacts to it when Roderick the Reader calls him out in the Reaver. So yeah, I think it's possible that it's glamoured. It is possible that he found it somewhere other than Valyria. I mean, there are artifacts from the, the old empire scattered all over Essos and even Westeros. Maybe he went to a shy, you know, we, we, he was possibly in Karth at one point. So he, he still could be lying about it. And as you say, since uh, Martin confirmed that Euron got Dragonbinder from the warlocks that were chasing Daenerys as well as the Shade of the Evening, perhaps they had the Valyrian steel armor as part of their plan to tame slash kill Danny's dragons. Hmm. And, and Euron stole it from them. So uh, I will say overall, the, the Faceless Men, Dragon Egg, the Old Town plot is one that kind of makes me scratch my head, even though I love all the elements of it. Yeah. I, I love Old Town as a setting. Uh, I like that Martin brought back uh, Jock and Hagar's new face, which uh, <laughs> I was kind of I was kind of expecting him to drop out of the series when I first read The Clash of Kings and he leaves Arya in Harrenhal. So to have him come back is great. But I'm not, I'm not sure how that fits into the bigger picture or whether the Faceless Men are going to have a serious role to play regarding Danny and her dragons. So there is a lot of wiggle room in terms of how Martin executes that because uh, that's, that's a part, part of a whole I don't really fully have uh, my head around at this point. I must admit. The, yeah, I have, to, I have to admit the same. I, that whole Faceless Men and Old Town plot just kind of makes me scratch my head too because as we talk about in Stuff the Chumps Part 2, we're fairly sure that the reason why Jack and Agar is in Old Town is he's trying to get access to the vaults in the Citadel in order to take a, a book or two books. The book that we think he's primarily going to be taking is The Death of the Dragons, but we don't know why he's taking the book. Obviously, there's the potential connection between Euron and the Dragon Egg, but it's still unclear to us what the Faceless Men plan with the, with the Dragon Egg. And it's also unclear to us, too, how George would incorporate some sort of Faceless Men dragon egg plot in just two final books when he's got mega monstrous plot arcs left to cover that are still left open and some stuff even from A Dance of Dragons that was supposed to be in that book that is going to be in The Winds of Winter now. So kind of feels like it, it might not it might not pan out or if it does pan out, it might lead to an eighth book. We'll see. I mean, it's hard to say. It's interesting that that Forsaken chapter is, is fascinating on a number of levels, but I do remember being there when George read The Forsaken. By the way, Emmett, I was there when George read The Forsaken. I don't yeah, know if you Jeff. Remember that. I remember that. I know about that. <laughs> you know who wasn't there, Jeff? Who? Me. Oh. Oh. The number oh. one year. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your sympathy. It really, really, oh. really soothes, soothes the, uh, the hole that still leaves in my heart. I'll never be complete. But thanks. Thanks, Jeff. No, no just, problem, man. It's, well, a, it's a, a lovely way to start off an episode. Yes, 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 it is. Talking about the things that you that are that make you sad and make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Again, that's the podcast, folks. There you go. There you go. And thanks for listening. But no, no, it was it was, it was really cool when George read about Euron being decked out in Valyrian steel armor. Like everyone had a oh, yeah. audible gasp in the audience, and I was sitting in like 
three or four rows back from George. I mean, George was up on the stage and I was one of the first people in, in the room because I was, I was sure that he was going to read a new chapter from the winds of winter. And when he read the forsaken, everyone's like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. But when he was, you're on decked out in the Valyrian steel armor and George knew it too. He had this little smile when he said, it. <laughs> so it's like, he like that knew that people right. were going to be floored about by it. So, um, well, it's, it's a new artifact. It's the first big, you know, first big new artifact since I don't even know. Was there a big new artifact in dance? Like what would be what would be the what was what's an object of introduce interest that was introduced in Dance with Dragons? I can't really think of one off the top of my head. I, I'm sure there are some that are there, but I also the dragon horns. No, the dragon horns were a feast for crows. That's what I'm thinking. It's like the last big ma- new artif- magical artifact was Dragonbinder, also introduced by Euron. Yeah. So yeah, that is that that Valyrian steel armor was uh, quite quite the breadcrumb to a, a crowd starving for for more content. So I'm not surprised there was a big gasp. No, yeah. It's, but it's yeah, fabulous. whether it's a glamour or not, it's going to be fascinating to see what Martin uh, does with it in the Winds of Winter. Yeah, because the silence is sailing it to battle, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Yeah, exactly. It's be great. And they got the they got the Fury Road guitar guy playing in the background. Absolutely. It's going to be that's that is the plot I'm looking forward to most. So can't wait. Yes, that'll be so much fun. So thank you, Lady Charlotte B, for the question. Again, if you guys are interested, our Stump the Chumps Part Two, which is where we answer numerous questions from all of our five dollar and above patrons, is coming your way on October. 25th for all $5 and above patrons and a few days earlier for some of our more higher tiered patrons. So if you have not checked our pa- out our Patreon, check it out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOF. And if you'd like to ask us a question on our normal podcast, that is available for all of our sworn sword patrons. And you can also find that at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOF. So one final note about our Patreon, and I apologize, I know I'm kind of going patron heavy right now. But our next patron-only episode is going to be coming out next month, and it's going to be our full-out analysis of Fire and Blood Volume 1, as well as our reactions and analysis of the George R. R. Martin appearance at Jersey City on November on November 19th, because Emmett and I, as well as the Girls Gone Canon podcasts and other luminaries will be present at that appearance in Jersey City. So if you guys are going to be there, send us a message, let us know. We would love to see and interact with you all. Yeah, that's going to be a great episode, uh, both covering that event, which will be wonderful to see George ask him a couple questions, but also to analyze Fire and Blood Volume 1 itself, because as you can tell from the reaction to just a little excerpt that Martin tossed our way a little bit ago, there's 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 plenty to analyze and, again, plenty of breadcrumbs to play with. So, yeah, uh, check out our Patreon if you have not already. And um, look forward to that episode. I think it'll be one of our best Patreon episodes yet. I think it will be, too. And if you sign up, you get all the other Patreon episodes. Well, so you can wait in the meantime. But this episode is not a Patreon episode. It is our episode analyzing Game of Thrones Daenerys 4. And here is its synopsis. Daenerys Targaryen passes under a gate fashioned by two giant bronze stallions and enters Vase Dothrak. The gate is odd because the damn city doesn't have walls or buildings so far as as she can see. But Danny, Jorah, and Viserys do ride through the gate all the same and down a long road into the city. Hey, wait, Viserys? Yes, Viserys. He's there too. God <laughs> damn it. He's riding alongside of, of Daenerys and Viserys, but it's odd, right? Given since the last time we saw him, he was sitting his whiny ass down on the Great Grass Sea, right? Yeah. Well, he's there only after walking a bit of the way to Vase Dothrak and then being given a cart. Viserys had thought Drogo was apologizing with the cart. 
he wasn't. He and the rest of the Dothraki had called him Kaoremar, that is the sorefoot king when he walked, and then Kaoregat, the cart king when he rode in the cart. You see, in Dothraki culture, walking and carts are seen as dishonorable and only fit for eunuchs and pregnant women and other terrible, awful members of society. <laughs> it was only after Danny had used all of her bed tricks on Drogo that the call had consented to Viserys riding a real horse again, just like a real fucking boy. <laughs> Danny looks ahead and wonders where the city is. Jorah tells her that it's under the great mountain looming in the distance. The party passes by the statues of gods and heroes that the Dothraki had, quote unquote, liberated from their vanquished enemies. Stone kings, black dragons, griffins, manacores, and some beasts that were so beautiful or either so terrible and misshapen that Danny can't bear to look at them. Those ones are from a shy, Jor explains. Sounds like a lovely place. Viserys doesn't think much of the statues, the trash of dead cities, he says in the common tongue. But because he's a cock and not 100% of a stupid cock, he doesn't say it in a tongue that any of the Dothraki can understand. While Viserys goes on and on about how the Dothraki are savages and thieves, Danny finally tells him to cut that shit out. The Dothraki aren't savages, they're her people now. Viserys retorts that he's a very brave dragon, and he can say whatever the fuck he wants. You know, so long as it's in a language only he, Danny, and Jorah can understand. But anyway, when does Drogo give me his give give Viserys his army? The princess must be presented to the Dashkalin, Jorah replies. You see, before there's any invasion of Westeros, Daenerys Targaryen will be presented to the widows of the dead calls, and a prophecy will be spoken about her unborn child. More on that in Daenerys 5. But Viserys is tired of eating all this goddamn horse meat and smelling bad. Give the boy his milk and some nice clothes, for God's sake. Jorah tells him to get over to the market to get his milk and cookies. When Viserys spots a statue with six boobs and a ferret's head, he finally gets off page. Thank God. <laughs> with Viserys gone, Daenerys tells Jorah she hopes Drogo doesn't keep him long. Jorah says that Viserys should have really stayed put in Pentos like Illyria offered. The Dothraki do things in their own time, and that concept of trading is foreign to the Dothraki. They do gifts. Daenerys was Viserys' gift to Drogo, and Drogo will give a gift to Viserys in return. A golden crown. Yes, he will. Danny finds herself strangely defending Viserys. It's really not right to make him wait. Besides, Viserys claims he can sweep the Seven Kings with just 10,000 Dothraki. Jorah throws a bullshit card on that, and then Daenerys says something interesting. What if it were not Viserys? If there were someone else who led them? Someone stronger? Could the Dothraki truly conquer the Seven Kingdoms? Jorah grows thoughtful. Someone else? Yeah, maybe. On the question of whether the Dothraki could conquer Westeros, Jorah's first impression was that the Knights of Westeros would beat the Dothraki, but now, now he thinks that the Dothraki could take on Westeros. Drogo had 40,000 warriors, the same number Rhaegar had at the Trident, but unlike Rhaegar, they're all mounted and highly experienced and seasoned warriors. But the Dothraki would struggle in siege warfare. Good thing for the Dothraki and Khal Drogo that Robert is ruling. He's not about to hide inside his castle. But the other High Lords, Stannis, Tywin, and Ned Stark, would caution a different course. What about this Ned Stark, Danny asks? Why do you hate him? Well, he took everything that Jorah loved, and only because he practiced slavery. Only that, man. Only that, Emma. Just that. Just slavery. What's a little slavery between friends? Right, exactly. But before Jorah can say any more, he points up ahead to Vase Dothrak. It's a vast, yet small city. It's ten times larger than Pentos in area, but the buildings were all strange and deserted. Pavilions, grass manses, wooden towers, pyramids made of marble, log halls open to the sky. No rhyme or reason behind their construction. And why the haphazard construction? 
Well, Viserys wasn't all the way wrong when he spoke of Vase Dothrakis, the trash of dead cities. This city was built by slaves of the conquered peoples that the Dothraki had brought here. So everyone built buildings after their own cultural fashion. And as to the deserted buildings, the only permanent residents in Vase Dothrak are the Dashkalin. But not to fear, this city can house the entirety of all the Dothraki should they ever gather together. Hmm, wonder if that's foreshadowing. Anyways, they arrive at the Eastern Market with the Mother of Mountains over them. They're led to a quote-unquote palace, in reality a wooden feasting hall with a, with a roof open to the sky. And there all the Dothraki hand over their weapons to the slaves. You see, no weapons were allowed in Vase Dothrak. This was the place for all Dothraki. Eri and Jiqui help Danny down from her silver, and Kohalo, Drogo's oldest blood, oldest blood rider, comes to Daenerys. We get a little more backstory about who Bloodriders are and what they do. They are the Call's closest companions and serve a sort of Kingsguard role to the Call. But unlike the Kingsguard, they only serve to the end of the Call's life, and then they join their Call in the Nightlands. And if their Call died in battle, they would only live long enough to avenge their dead Call. Danny likes the sound of that, especially given the treachery of the Kingsguard in Westeros. She'd have Bloodriders watching over her son instead of some traitorous Jamie Lannister or Turn Cloak and Barristan Selmy. But Kahalo is only here to tell Danny that Drogo is heading up to the Mother Mountains to sacrifice to the gods for their safe passage back to Vase Dothrak. Danny says thanks and orders a bath for herself. The bath water is scalding, just the way that Danny loves it. And Danny says that she'd like to give gifts to Viserys to atone for what happened on the Dothraki Sea. Besides, Viserys is still the king, right? Right? Wrong. That's Dennis. Check mark. <laughs> Brand maintained. <laughs> Daenerys dispatches Doria to invite that asshole over for dinner. Meanwhile, Eri is to head over to the market to buy food that Viserys likes, anything but horse meat. Also, Danny has had some brand new clothes sewn for Viserys, as his silk clothes were ruined on the road to Vaisdothrak. Eri arrives back with the food, and Daenerys wonders whether they're and Daenerys wonders whether maybe these gifts will serve as, you know, kind of an olive branch to Viserys. Maybe not. Viserys storms into the room after punching Doria in the face, enraged that Doria would command Viserys to come to dinner. When Danny asks Doria what she told Viserys, her handmaid replies that she that all she did was command him to come to dinner. She doesn't know what she did wrong, though. No one commands the dragon. I am the king. I should have sent you back her head. Simmer down, asshole, Danny tries to tell Viserys. <laughs> she tries to present the clothing gifts to him, but Viserys ain't about that. Dothraki rags. Next, you want to braid my hair like some savage too, right? Fuck no. You have no right to a braid. You have won no victories yet. Damn! <laughs> Danny knows it's wrong. To, it's the wrong thing to say, but she's past caring. Viserys is furious, and Danny is upset. She had Doria sew a call's clothing for Viserys. The cart king snaps that he's the lord of the seven kingdoms and Danny's pregnancy won't protect her if the dragon is woke. He grabs her arm and for the moment, Danny feels the same way she did in her very first chapter. Until she grabs the belt she was going to give him and hits that son of a bitch fucking asshole straight in the goddamn face. Hell yes. Hell yes. Mm -hmm. Leave me now before I summon my cause to drag you out and pray that Khal Drogo does not hear of this or he will cut open your belly and feed you your entrails. Shit, man, that's Danny is dropping some bombs here. Viserys gets back to his feet, whimpering that when he gets back to his kingdom, Danny's gonna be sorry. And then he finally leaves. Thank God, at last. Jiqui offers Danny dinner, but she's not hungry for food. Instead, she asks that her dragon eggs be brought to her. She holds the eggs close, and then she feels her unborn child move inside of her, almost as if the eggs in her unborn child were related. That's interesting. You were the dragon, Danny whispered to him. The true dragon. I know it. I know it. 
she falls asleep dreaming of home. And that is Game of Thrones Daenerys 4. Culture shock, emotions, and the penultimate step to Viserys' downfall. I'm sure you guys could tell it, but I love this chapter. You guys better love it. And if you don't, you're stupid, fat, ugly, and will die unmourned. Emmett, your thoughts. My oh my, Jeff's working blue, folks. Uh, I, I feel like admonishing you for cursing like I'm Captain America and you're Iron Man. But, um, but that's, that's, a shi- that's a ship for another day. You would be more of the Iron Man, though, and I'd be more of the Captain. No, you actually the reverse. You'd be more of the Captain America. I'd be more of the Iron Man. Being the yeah, you, you filthy capitalist. You, it's true. It's true. You filthy New Dealer. Exactly. Anywho, <laughs> but yeah. So this is, of course, our first Danny chapter in a while. The last one, Daenerys Three, which we discussed with our friend LML, crossed great distances in both space and time. Danny Four largely serves to introduce us to a single location, the sacred city of Vaestothrak, where we'll spend the next couple of Danny chapters. It's a lot like Cattle in Six, which we recently covered, in that it's more connective tissue and an orgy of world building than it is an iconic story beat unto itself. The two chapters even have a huge mountain in common, although we won't climb this one. Not yet, anyway. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that. Also, as with Cattle in Six, while it's not as beloved as the chapters that come before and after it in our POV story, Danny Four gives us some dazzling imagery and groundwork to chew on, as well as furthering Danny's character arc regarding Viserys, the Dothraki, and how she feels the pressure on both of those sides from the worlds and the paths for her that they represent. Agreed, man. This chapter is all about that pull from both her Dothraki and Targaryen identities set against this swirl of new exotic sites. And it's really impressive story building by on George's part. While Daenerys adapts Dothraki customs, wears Dothraki garments, and has even at this point learned a few Dothraki words, she learns more in her next chapter, she's not gone full native. She's still yep. a dragon, seen both in her questions to Jorah about Westeros, and symbolized by her desire to have her dragon eggs brought to her at the end of the chapter. But she's also not in Pentos anymore. She's not a powerless exiled princess. She's becoming a Khaleesi. A Targaryen Khaleesi. Precisely. That's the main topic of this chapter, really, is the education of Daenerys as a Khaleesi. Danny Three was this immersive deep dive for both Danny and the reader into life in the Kalasar. You know, getting used to uh, the saddle, getting used to her husband, getting used to the culture, and but also finding the strength to face all those things because of her dragon dream. So there is a connection there. And Danny Four shows us both how far she's come and also how far she has yet to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, first, early on in the chapter, we get evidence of her growth in understanding and agency within Dothraki culture. Uh, as you said, uh, Danny's riding with uh, Jorah and Viserys. The Dothraki call him uh, Kal Raymar, the Sorefoot King. And, uh, of course, Daenerys knows what those words mean, and Viserys <laughs> does not. Uh, and then Kal Ragat, the Cart King. So you, you see this kind of you know, culture within the Dothraki of attaching your worth and your identity and your, your masculine prowess to the ability to ride. This, of course, is something that will come up very dramatically later on in Daenerys' story when Drogo becomes unable to ride. Yeah. And Daenerys understands that, but what, what makes it really great is that Viserys doesn't. He thinks he's being given his proper due. <laughs> Quote, her brother had thought it was the cow's way of apologizing for the wrong Danny had done him. Because <laughs> that's how it works in Westeros. Like, Viserys is Cersei in the wheelhouse here, right? This is yes. this is the this is the option of not working that comes with sitting atop the feudal pyramid. But the Dothraki are basically a culture of Robert Baratheons, right. where it's all about riding on the horse and, and you know feeling that horse between your legs. So Viserys not taking that option isn't as it would be in Westeros an indication of his power. It's an indication of weakness, and he doesn't understand that. Again, being closed off in Westeros is a position of power. Being locked within your cart within the Red Keep. 
you know, within within these refined and, and, and hidden spaces. But in a Kalisar, everything is public, and you, you prove yourself by living as your stated identity in front of everyone. The judgment and shame are intertwined with this this visibility. And Danny is starting to understand that. Again, like she says in her last chapter that she has to take Drogo out in, in public because everything that's important in a man's life that Dothraki believed had to be done under open sky. Yep. That's exactly the opposite of what Viserys believes. So you, they're, they're starting to starting to diverge a bit. And so right away this establishes Danny's relationship with Viserys as the key point of the tension between her Westerosi slash Valyrian identity and her Dothraki identity. And all of this, of course, is happening as they ride through the horse gate. They're literally passing through a portal into the center of Dothraki culture. <laughs> and therein lies the crucible, as of course we'll see in Danny Five when this conflict with Viserys comes to a head. Well, I think you did answer the question of, of why they have a gate there. In terms of the literary side, the meta side is a portal between two worlds. Doesn't necessarily answer the question of why there is no walls around the city of Vase Dothrak, but I have to imagine that was because the Dothraki are like, fuck anyone who tries to come against us. We got like 100,000 people that can ride through and just crush any army that attempts to march on us. And why would you want to march on the city anyways? So there's no reason to. Exactly. It's, it's almost a perverse sign of strength saying we don't need, we don't need walls. We're, we're, right. we're just that, we're that good at what we do. It's um, almost the opposite of how uh, Castle Black has no defenses to the south. Yeah. Which is a, a political statement by the Night's Watch that they are no danger to the to the realms of men. The Dothraki having no walls is a statement that they are a danger, uh, but th- that no one's powerful enough to stop them. Yeah. And yeah, but of course, along with this evolution, we get the discovery of new blind spots. As you said, Danny's in between identities. She has, you know, assimilation is not simple and easy, nor should it be. Mm-hmm. You can see that throughout this chapter, which Danny... Danny can't really wrap her head around what Veus Dothrak is, exactly. Like, she's just <laughs> kind of curious about it the whole time. Like, in the quote, Danny could not have said why the city needed a gate when it had no walls and no buildings that she could see. And <laughs> where is the city, she asked, as they passed beneath the Bronze Ark. There were no buildings to be seen, no people, only the grass on the road, lined with ancient monuments from all the land that Dothraki had sacked over the centuries. She's comparing it to the city she's known. She's comparing it to the, the free cities, who in this part of the world, are considered the West along with Westeros. That's lumped in as all sure. one place. The Western market versus the Eastern market. So, yeah, she, the quote is, Danny followed close on her silver, staring at the strangeness about her. Vaistothrak was at once the largest city and the smallest that she had ever known. She thought it must be ten times as large as Pentos, as you said in your summary. A vastness without walls or limits. Its broad windswept streets paved in grass and mud and carpeted with flowers. And the free cities of the West, towers and manses and hovels and bridges and shops and halls, all crowded in on one another, as we will, of course, uh, see more of in Bravos and Volantis. But Veus Dothrak sprawled languorously, baking in the warm sun, ancient, arrogant, hmm. and empty. So it's not just that it's a new place, it's a new kind of place. She's not. Ju- it's not like, you know, when if you go to... A, a, a city abroad you might not speak the language but you can tell like what a food stand looks like sure. or what an airport looks like or what a museum looks like danny's in a city she can't even visually figure out <laughs> why it exists where the people are what anything is for this is a whole in, entirely new culture she has to understand a new purpose for a city beyond just being kind of these these warrens like the free cities it's vaistothrak has this spiritual presence, this kind of aspirational purpose that makes it different from really any other city that we've encountered so far. Yeah. The quote is, most of the halls, even the largest, seem deserted. Where are the people who live here? Danny asked. The bazaar had been full of running children and men shouting, but elsewhere she'd seen only a few eunuchs going about their business. And then Sorajara says, you know, only the crones of the Dash Kaleen dwell permanently in the sacred city. 
But as you said, yet vase doth rack is large enough to house every man of every Kalasar, should all the cows return to the mother at once. So I actually, I actually really like vase doth rack. I think outside of the House of the Undying, it's probably my favorite setting in Danny's story to date. Yeah. Because uh, it's just, yeah, architecturally interesting, historically interesting. There's a, yeah, a sense of spirituality to it. It kind of reminds me of the Barrel Lands in the north. This, this sense of like real, like real ghosts and real kind of religious weight that uh, I think is interesting about it. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating city, and I think you had sparked something in my mind in your description and uh, analysis of of Vastothrak as a spiritual place. In that, when we think about cities like Pentos or King's Landing or the other free cities and even castles for those matters, they're about limitations. The walls protect for sure, right. but they also limit the people from expanding out. Vase Dothrak, the Dothraki are expansionistic. They're an expansionist people. They conquer cities as demonstrated by all the idols and the statues that they have lining their streets. You kind of wonder if that's both celebrating the Dothraki victories as well as a warning to any potential invader that, hey, this is what's happened to every single person and every single culture that has attempted to challenge us. We've defeated everyone. Come at us, bro. You know, it's it's very much a, a demonstration of Dothraki power. I love the fact that the cities spread out and just huge. And I love that that line you mentioned, ancient, arrogant, and empty. The Dothraki yeah, yeah. basically are saying to the world, we can go wherever the fuck we want. Like, you guys can hide behind your walls. You can stay there. But the entire world is our city. Phase Dothrak can potentially, and I'm not saying it's going to, but can potentially cover all of Essos. Whereas the cities of Pentos, Volantis, Bravos, even, behind their walls, they have to build on top of each other. Vase Dothrak, yeah. they can just spread out forever and ever. That's a great point. It's uh, so resonant with how Jorah describes the ghost grass as eventually conquering the entire world. And, yeah. Uh, previous Danny chapter, which of course is, is uh, symbolic of the others as well. But yeah, you, you can really, I think, see it together, all knit together in the display of the fallen heroes and conquered gods that, that Danny is writing past. It's, that's a, it's a multiplicity of cultures, but it's done under the shadow of imperialism, which is mm. something that any of descendant of Valyria has to wrestle with. Yes. And a, a large part of Danny's story to date is about kind of going up against the legacy of Valyria, of her own uh, history, her own her family's history and the history of her people. Which she hasn't really kind of explicitly confronted, but she also <laughs> hasn't really explicitly confronted uh, Eris or Rhaegar yet. True. So I think I imagine that's what a lot of her story will be about going forward. And yeah, the the Dothraki similarly uh, have that that sense where Vice Dothrak is the center of the world, and everyone can come there, and there's all the markets. But it's it's done under the shadow of conquest and subjugation for sure. Yep. But they're hardly unique in that regard. I mean, Varys dismisses it all as trash, as if his entire worldview <laughs> and plans for the future aren't rooted in obsession over totems of conquest. Like, exactly. Viserys is like, oh, the trash of dead cities, all they knew out of new is steel. Oh, you mean like the Iron Throne? Right. Which was composed of swords stolen from your enemies, literally just a giant pile of trash? Like, yeah, obviously it only exists because of dragon flame, but the, the, the miracles of, of Valyrian, Valyrian civilization exists not because the Valyrians are smarter or more industrious than other peoples. It's because of fire and blood. Valyrian abilities and creations are rooted in sorcery. Yep. And that's rooted... I mean, obviously, there's a lot about this history we don't know, but that's rooted more or less in geographical luck, I think, as far as the dragons and the 14 flames are concerned. So I think Viserys' attitude of cultural superiority, I think, is unjustified on one hand, but also, as Jorah says, he's not wrong about... The futility of the statement that Dothraki are making here. Yeah. 
Like, it reminds me of uh, the classic poem Ozymandias about, you know, the great king, look upon my works in despair, but behind his that proclamation is just desert, just the sand having <laughs> blown over his entire kingdom. I think Martin is emphasizing, yeah, that really this, these statues don't serve the Dothraki in any practical sense. They're not doing anything with them. They're just kind of sitting there. Yeah. And yes, they are they are totems of conquest, but unlike the Ironborn at Mo Kalin that Ramsay uses in kind of a similar warning fashion, I th- you know, that's that's a message directed in a, in a place and time where Bolton rule is very much uncertain. But like yep. by the time you get to the horse gate, the Dothraki are in charge. So really, who, who are you impressing at this point? I mean, like Jorah says, the Dothraki don't build. They're not adding to to these these culture they're not giving it their own flavor they're, they're not aiming for the kind of assimilation that danny is aiming for is what i'm saying this is it's just it's just kind of hoarding it's just kind of a dragon like sitting on his gold that's what the dothraki uh-huh. are basically doing here and i for me the overall point is that danny has to do better than both viserys and the dothraki Agreed. she has to get past viserys's kind of entitled racist worldview about the Dothraki. Her crusade has, can't look just like a, a street of, of dead heroes and conquered gods. She has to create something better than that. And I think this is something you can see resonate across a lot of the story. The the many-faced god that Arya meets in Braavos feels like a connection to this this array of very different gods and heroes all gathered together. When Euron is introduced, he has this huge monologue about how he's... he's you know, he's, he's been all over the world to every country and seen all their gods and all the different prayers and none of them were answered. <laughs> it seems like he'd, he seems like he'd fit in very well among the Dothraki, actually. Um, and of course, just the, the imagery of this whole intro, introductory scene to Vase Dothrak with the, all the crazy statues, including the weird ones from Ashai and the, 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 the giant bronze stallions. Uh, it feels very like, you know, like 1970s kind of overblown lava lamp prog rock psychedelic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Uh, you know, it feels like I think of like uh, the Led Zeppelin song "Cashmere" for this chapter, like that kind of big, overreaching sound. Exactly, um, and that stuff is a huge influence on *A Song of Ice and Fire*. You know, it's it's one of the things that separates it from Tolkien. Is Tolkien as much as I love *Lord of the Rings* has a sort of a fussiness, kind of uptightness to it, which I love. That's kind of part of the appeal of the tone of *Lord of the Rings*. But uh, Song of Ice and Fire is a different generation, so you get that more kind of psychedelic counterculture influence. Hence the title of this episode, The Holy Mountain, is a, a experimental movie by Jodorowsky. If you haven't seen it, it's just the weirdest, most 70s-esque <laughs> thing imaginable, loaded with like crazy religious symbolism, and everyone was on acid while they were making it, and ends <laughs> with the most meta thing imaginable. So it's, it's, it's definitely of its time, but it, it's that sort of thing is I think is very much an influence on like these kind of Danny chapters, is that... That that baby boomer Grateful Dead kind of thing. You can see Martin like expressing his love for that. I think here. Yeah, he really can. You know, Martin had started his writing career in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, and had wrote a number of science fiction and fantasy. I'm not saying he was on drugs when he wrote those books, but I'm not saying <laughs> he wasn't either. So, um, always always something to keep in mind is that to look at George's upbringing and his kind of literary tradition that he's following, because he is following both Tolkien as well as The Grateful Dead, and he has cited The Grateful Dead as one of his favorite bands, and I believe he was at one of their concerts maybe like two years ago or something like that, so he's continued on in his fandom on, on, on for The Grateful Dead there. But no, this, it's, it's a fantastic point you make about the Dothraki and how it's arrogant and empty and how they're not doing anything with the things they've stolen from the other cultures from the, or liberated, if you want to call it that. And yeah, Danny does have to do a lot better than that. She, and she has to do better than her Valyrian ancestors too. And yep. in, in a way I, I feel like the 
the best course for her to take is something akin to Aegon the Conqueror, who did destroy in seizing Westeros from the various kings and lords who were who were ruling there. But at the same time, he also established new rules and reforms that did lead to a better Westeros, at least in the short term. And of course, it kind of all fell apart in the Dance of the Dragons and various other Targaryen civil wars and and, and so forth. But yeah, Danny has to do better and it's going to be something in doing better. She has to be looking at her identity both as a Dothraki Khaleesi as well as a Targaryen queen. And that's conflict is going to is really the center of this chapter. And really, you find Danny caught between those two identities. And that's something that I think Martin does really well is doing those identity conflicts. Theon in a Dance with Dragons, Theon in a Clash of Kings, Jamie in a Storm of Swords, Arya in a Feast for Crows. Daenerys Targaryen, in my mind, is the one character in a Game of Thrones who has a very strong identity, not crisis, but conflict between two competing identities and something that she's going to have to resolve before the end of this book, I think. Yeah, it's a great comparison to The Conqueror, obviously. You got the field of fire on his record. It's hard to come back from that. (laughs) But yeah, he also assimilated very deliberately in some ways, uh, religiously, certain certain political concessions he made the way he dealt with some lords. And both both Viserys and the Dothraki, albeit for different reasons, are not prepared to do that. And Dany's assimilation in this chapter, attempts at assimilation, imperfect as they are, indicate that she is a much more much more proper leader to take that particular role on. As you as you were saying earlier, Danny is deeply conflicted in this chapter. She's caught between herself. I think it's she's interesting that in the early part of the chapter she's kind of talking out both sides of her mouth. Mm-hmm. She feels the need to defend the Dothraki from Viserys's racist criticism of their culture when he's going on about the trash of dead cities, but as you say, making sure he's only speaking in the common tongue. <laughs> A nice little touch on Martin's part and uh, Danny says, "They are my people now. You should not call them savages, brother." On the other hand, though, she's also defending Viserys from Jorah's criticism of Viserys's failure to understand the Dothraki. When Jorah says, the Dothraki look on these things differently than we do in the West. I've, I've told him, but your brother does not listen. Uh, the horse lords are no traitors, as you said. Viserys thinks he sold you, and now he wants his price. Yet Khal Drogo would say he had you as a gift. He will give Viserys a gift in return, yes, in his own time. <laughs> you do not demand a gift, not of a cow. You do not demand anything of a cow. Putting <laughs> aside for the question of whether Drogo really intends to honor this promise or not, because you kind of get the sense he's trying to scam Viserys. <laughs> but that's that's kind of that's a separate question. But the, the point being that Jorah's pointing out those that failure to assimilate on Viserys's part. But Danny says, as as you pointed out, it is not right to make him wait. Danny did not know why she was defending her brother, yet she was. So she's defending both sides from each other. And she's just, she's not really where, not really certain of where she stands. Uh, you can kind of sense her on the precipice at this point. She's, you know, she's only here to, as Viserys said, to get him an army to go back and conquer Westeros for their Targaryen identity. But she's really kind of feeling more connected to the Dothraki one at this point, at least in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, the connection to the Dothraki is strong because as awful as the Dothraki are, they do serve as a better contrast to her abusive brother, Viserys. And... But at the same time, I think Danny's defense of Viserys is very much grounded in the way that sometimes you find abu- abused children defending their abusive parents. You know, I've I've seen that in my own life of, of various people defending abusers as not that bad or, you know, they had a point or, you know, I was I, I said I said the wrong thing or something like that. So you can see those that Danny is 
attached to the Dothraki for sure, but she still is defending her abuser. And that's because she's the victim of abuse. And one of those fallouts from abuse is, unfortunately, that a lot of folks end up defending their abusers and standing by your man, so to speak, in some cases, if you want to use that example there. Yeah, I, I do wonder about whether Drogo intended to fulfill his gift to Viserys. I do lean towards him scamming Viserys, but at the same time, I don't know that Drogo would be would have a long-lasting rule if he wasn't seen honoring the Dothraki traditions of returning of of a gift for a gift sort of thing, because that sort of foundational tradition works in Dothraki culture in the same way that something like guest right works in, in Westeros. It's one of those foundational, seemingly foundational Dothraki customs that really kind of serves as a bulwark in, in the, in the culture that is that beyond that is mostly banded together for conquest, loot and plunder. That's a very good point uh, that, that Drogo could potentially lose face with his Kalisar. He would also be destroying his relationship with Illyria, which who knows how much he really cares about that. But Drogo seems to enjoy the clout he wields in the free cities. That would definitely be endangered. I don't know. What makes me think it might be a scam is how adamant Drogo is in Danny Six about his loathing of the ocean yeah. and his uninterest in conquering Westeros. That doesn't sound like something he just developed right after Viserys died. True. That's, that seems like it's a real tradition and superstition he was not willing to break. That yeah. Ned was right that the Dothraki aren't going to cross the ocean. But uh, we can look in, into that uh, with more detail when we get to Danny Five and Six. Certainly. In Danny Four, Viserys comes to stand in for Westerosi ignorance of the Dothraki. Uh, a blind spot that Jorah has dispelled and that Danny must do in order to lead on both sides of the narrow sea. As, you know, Jorah talks to Danny when Danny asks if someone stronger than Viserys could conquer Westeros with the Dothraki. Uh, Jorah talks about how, you know, when he first went into exile, he basically thought the way Viserys did. I looked at the Dothraki and saw half-naked barbarians, as wild as their horses. You know, calling them barbarians is similar to how Viserys called them savages. Calling them wild as their horses is relating them to animals, which is, again, the way Viserys talks. So if you had asked me then, princess, I should have told you that a thousand good knights would have no trouble putting to flight a hundred times as many Dothraki. He's talking like basically Sir Donald Wainwood. Hmm. You know, if I had uh, 20 good knights, I could ride up and teach those mountain clans a sharp lesson. It's that, that ignorance and that kind of elitist cultural blind spot. But Jorah has been in Essos long enough. Well, I don't really like Jorah Mormon as a character. This is something I do find kind of interesting about him. He's been in Essos long enough to know a little bit better. Yeah. And he, he's able to give Danny this lesson about, you know, cavalry-wise, the Dothraki are really just leagues ahead of Westeros. Cavalry yeah. as, as archers. Uh, and they just have this kind of intensity battle fever, you know, everyone's screaming for blood, as he puts it, that makes them a real potent shock and awe force. And this is something that Viserys doesn't understand, even though he wants to be using them that way. Like, he hasn't bothered to learn about the culture, even though he would have to, to be an effective leader of these people, but he's not even bothering. And then Daenerys is the one actually asking the questions and comparing Westeros to Essos. She's, you know, not just learning about the Dothraki, but also asking about Robert. Is he a fool, I mean? So she's trying to master both these worlds at once, which again, marks her out, I think, as a stronger candidate than Viserys. So I think you can really see Danny trying to bridge this gap when she arrives at Drogo's palace. That she, this really interesting little detail, she frames her son's future reign on the Iron Throne as a blending of Westerosi and Dothraki models of leadership. She's just talking about Drogo's blood riders and how she doesn't really like them, but... Uh, they were bound to Drogo for life and death, so Daenerys had no choice but to accept them. And sometimes she found herself wishing her father had been protected by such men. Hmm. 
in the songs. Uh, it's always important. Ever, always prick your ears up when Martin talks about in the songs. Mm-hmm. He's, he's making a point. The white knights of the Kingsguard were ever noble, valiant, and true. And yet King Eris had been murdered by one of them. The handsome boy they now called the Kingslayer. I love that even Danny knows that Jamie's pretty. Like, <laughs> that information crossed the narrow sea. Viserys felt the need to mention this. And a second, Sir Barristan the Bold had gone over to the Usurper. She wondered if all men were as false in the Seven Kingdoms. Ironic, given that Jorah's being false to her right now. <laughs> when her son, and this is the interesting part, when her son sat the Iron Throne, she would see that he had blood riders of his own to protect him against treachery and his Kingsguard. That's a really <laughs> novel idea. That she's saying, my son's going to have both. He's going to have blood riders and Kingsguard. And I'm going to pit them against each other like I'm some sort of like, she's like a shark CEO trying to pit the departments against each other for resources. Right. Like, and that's, that's fascinating. That could potentially be a gigantic clusterfuck, as the history uh-huh. of the Kingsguard would seem to indicate. But it is culturally is fascinating that Dany is, is already thinking ahead about, as we said, uh, recently like the the figure of rago as the with the dothraki skin and this in the valyrian hair how am i going to combine these worlds how am i how am i going to wake make these two cultures work together how can my son best embody that and she's already thinking about it politically so that's i, I think that's a really interesting detail when i read this i think about her the stories that she heard growing up did she hear these stories from viserys or did she hear them from raymond derry it's, right, good point. It's interesting that she has heard songs about these guys. You don't imagine these songs were sung much in, you know, Bravos or Volantis or the other places that she ends up, or in Pentos, where she ultimately ends up before heading over to the to Vase Dothrak. But yeah, I, I do think it's a fascinating point you bring up that the songs serve a purpose in showing us that the reality is not necessarily the same as what's depicted in those songs. Something that we covered very much strongly in, in Sansa 2 from Game of Thrones when we covered about a month and a half ago. Yeah, no, I think it's it's fascinating to consider the King's Guard and, and the Blood Riders in conflict with each other. I think they would definitely be in conflict with each other. Oh, yeah. You don't, you, you kind of wonder like... Um, Daenerys, you can see the appeal, what Daenerys is saying at a surface level, but at the same time, you do in the long term kind of wonder whether that would be feasible, really, because I think it's so easy to have this idea that, oh, I'll just have blood riders and, you know, that'll protect my son. Well, maybe, but also it could also endanger him, too, because it could set people in Westeros against uh, against Daenerys Targaryen because the Kingsguard in a similar fashion that the Blood Riders do for the Dothraki, they have a, a tradition and a role in Dothraki culture in the way the Kingsguard have a tradition and role in Westerosi culture as being the bravest, the truest knights of the Seven Kingdoms. And being those true knights of the Seven Kingdoms and then being intermixed with the Dothraki Blood Riders might turn some heads, maybe perhaps in kind of the worst type of way, and could potentially set Mick Daenerys very unpopular if she's seen as subverting these long-lasting traditions in Westerosi culture. But I don't know. I think that's something that we'll have to see. I think maybe we're seeing a little bit of it in Game of Thrones, season sevens and eight, where you have the Dothraki taking places of honor alongside of Daenerys, but also being serving alongside of characters like Barristan and Jorah Mormont and others as well. So, so yeah. And uh, and for those of you who are listening along, my uh, my daughter has decided to join in the podcast. If you hear some coos and and uh, and alls, that's uh, that's me. That's not her. That's that's me. Our favorite little guest. <laughs> 
Bless her heart. Um, yeah, it's. I, I do think yeah, some, it would turn some heads, possibly also roll some heads. <laughs> That's uh, true. To have, have the Blood Riders and the Kingsguard kind of sharing space like that. But yeah, I think it is, it's less practical than it is just representative of this culture clash that Danny is experiencing. Yeah. Her, her struggle to reconcile these worlds. I mean, Vice Dothrak itself has the Western and Eastern markets that we'll get much more into detail, uh, much more into detail with when we get to Danny Six. But that kind of sets up the conflict Danny is dealing with here. These, these, these two very different worlds she's trying to move within. And, you know, it's what gives it kind of the emotional tinge, the the sadness and the sweetness to it is that she's really trying to make it work. Like she cares yeah. about both the Dothraki and Viserys, and she's trying to bridge this gap. She she has, as you said, Dothraki style clothing made for Viserys, and we can go back to Danny one in this book. The very first paragraph of that chapter is all about her, you know, get, receiving a dress from Illyrio and wondering at the connotations of what this gift means. And now we see her kind of engaging in that same kind of the same kind of potent, symbolically potent gift giving with Viserys. While her handmaids prepared the meal, Danny laid out the clothing she had made to her brother's measure: a tunic and leggings of crisp white linen, leather sandals that laced up to the knee, a bronze medallion belt, a leather vest painted with fire-breathing dragons. So again, it's it has the dragons on it. She's trying. The Dothraki would respect him more if he looked less a beggar, she hoped, and perhaps he would forgive her for shaming him that day in the grass. He was still her king, after all, and her brother. They were both the blood of the dragon. She's she's tr- taking this difficult step of making Viserys' worldview and the Dothraki worldview align somehow, trying to find uh, some common space, because she needs a common space to live in that world too. And it's been mentioned over and over that Viserys's uh, you know, silks and satins are just sweat-stained and horribly rotted because they're just not made for this climate. So she's she's doing him a favor. She's making him fit in here more and and trying to find a way to restore their their personal familial connection within this new environment. She's really doing everything right. And it, it of course, goes wrong immediately. Uh, not only because Viserys is an asshole, but because of how difficult it is to negotiate power between these worlds. That, you know, as you said in your uh, synopsis, that... Doria can only interpret what Danny said as give a command to Viserys. That's 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 what she filters as, but that's not what Danny said, and that's certainly not how Viserys takes it. So already there's not a direct language gap, but a a language gap in terms of meaning between these worlds, in terms of power and hierarchy, that of course Viserys is very sensitive to. I mean the question here is who is Danny? Is she Princess Daenerys Targaryen, sister and subject of King Viserys Targaryen, third of his name? Or is she the Khaleesi to the great Khal Drogo, with the authority to command the pitiful Cart King? And you can you can see those two people really fighting it out here in this in this scene in particular. Yeah, you you really can. And the fact that Viserys rejects those gifts that Danny gives shows us that that Danny's own assimilation into Dothraki culture is going to be difficult, and her potential taking of the Iron Throne is going to be likewise difficult. That Westeros may end up rejecting her ultimately because she's foreign to them, even though she's as a Targaryen, as as Westerosi as anyone else can claim to be Westerosi. I mean, I guess there's some certainly older families that can claim some longer descent of Westeros, but certainly the 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 Targaryens have a strong role in playing in 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 Westerosi history, and yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be tough for Danny when she gets to Westeros. And being kind of like 
merging the two identities because I think for the Dothraki, they might see her as weak and effeminate, as very Viserys-like, potentially. Although, of course, she will be on Dragonback. Yeah. So perhaps that will be uh, kind of offset that disadvantage. But That'll this, mitigate that for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, at the same time, you know, we talked about this before about how the... Um, the carts were only meant for pregnant women, cripples, and and eunuchs, and those types of, of, of people. And Daenerys is, you know, a pregnant woman at that point. She is riding a, a horse in the chapter, but she's uh, she's uh, she's seen as weak because of her sta- her status as a woman. The same way in Westeros, that the Westerosi may see her status as a Dothraki as kind of more of a savage, more of the way that Viserys looks at Daenerys and her new identity as a uh, as a Khaleesi, and sees it as being ultimately barbaric as opposed to uh, something that is that is worth uh, following. Yeah, Danny's kind of damned either way here because Viserys. Rejects the new identity she's developing, the clothing, the bartering, her attempts at reconciling the two cultures, not only due to his racism, but he also rejects it because he can't take charge of it. He's, he doesn't have a position of power and authority in the Dothraki. And the, the, those two are linked. He's, he's racist against the Dothraki in part because this is a culture he can't own. Uh, when, he's, when he looked at her and sneered, Dothraki rags, do you presume to dress me now? Like what's 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 really irritating him most there that the clothes are Dothraki or that Danny is quote presuming to dress him that Danny has authority over here Danny knows something that he does not and as uh, Stephen Atwell has pointed out many times you know cultural literacy is often equivalent to power in Danny's chapters whether you're here Slavers Bay uh, Carf even and presumably as you say when she gets to Westeros on a number of levels and and Viserys is feeling. Uh, as, as Harry Lloyd gets along really well in the show, he's feeling suddenly like he's the second best kid in the family. He's feeling like Daenerys is kind of actually going farther than he is, and he's kind of freaked out by it. Uh, she in, she inadvertently reveals in this scene that he's an utter failure by any cultural me- measure, whether it's the Dothraki or the Valyrians or Westerosi. And uh, next, you want to braid my hair, he says, and. Uh, Daenerys says, uh, you have no right to a braid. You have won no victories yet. <laughs> Which just wonderfully points out that, yeah, it's all talk. It's, it's really just all talk for Viserys. He's not, he hasn't, he hasn't conquered any countries. As I said, he hasn't even learned anything about the army he's purporting to lead. Uh, he doesn't have really any way other than his desperate murder attempt on Danny's life in our next chapter to get Drogo to stick to his end of the deal. He just, he, again, he doesn't have that egg in the conqueror personality where he can, forge a nation together out of uh, sheer will. Like you said, the Targaryens certainly haven't been in Westeros as long as a bunch of other noble families, but they more than anyone else are responsible for creating a pan-Westerosi identity, a national identity in Westeros. And that's kind of what Viserys is both pining for, but also proving he really can't manage. He doesn't He doesn't know how to culture, basically. Viserys <laughs> does not know how to do this, and he would need to be able to do this to rule Westeros. He would be. But part of his part of his issue is that he is very much scared and terrified of the Dothraki, as much as he's purporting to say that oh they don't even speak the common tongue like noblemen. He's so scared of these dudes. He's not even trying to speak their language when he's making fun of them, you know. And that's it's showing a fear, and it's showing that Viserys is he's obviously paranoid obviously has some errors the second like tendencies in his personality and outlook in life and at the same time though he is a little bit rational in terms of his mockery of the dothraki and in speaking the common tongue but he's also 
just not necessarily gelling with the culture there. You really should have stayed in in, in Pentos. You do wonder. I mean, you, you it is given the reason is given why Viserys goes with Daenerys and that he wants to make sure that Khal Drogo pays the price he was meant to pay back in Daenerys three, but. I don't know that this is necessarily going to work out for the long term here. And it and it doesn't work out in the long <laughs> so much activity going on here. And it doesn't work out in the long term because Viserys, of course, gets his crown of gold in the very next chapter from a game of from a Game of Thrones. Yeah, this is it's almost as if Stannis had tried not just to win the wildlings to his cost, but go native among the wildlings. I think it would go about as well. If Stannis tried to fit in among the free folk, like that's basically what Viserys is trying to do here. And yeah, it's, there's a cowardice underpinning it. He, he, for all his supremacist chest puffing, there's the quote, fury shown from his lilac eyes, yet he dared not strike her, not with her handmaids watching and the warriors of her cows outside. Again, the watching, everything is visible in the Kalasar. Everyone, someone's always looking. You know, it's not just you and your Kingsguard who keep your secrets, like in the Red Keep. Whatever yeah. he does is going to be heard about. It's going to be spread. And he knows he can't martially compete with these people. So, you know, Danny's hoped for cultural reconciliation is in tatters at this point, And she rejects him using a very telling weapon, one of the items of clothing that she bought for him. The, the belt she'd hoped to give him, a heavy chain of ornate bronze medallions. And she swung it with all her strength. It caught him full in the face. And that's, that's very telling that she picks this of all weapons, uh, this piece of clothing she hoped would bring the Dothraki cause and the Valyrian Targaryen identity together. But once Viserys makes that impossible, it becomes her weapon of choice. It becomes her siding with the Dothraki, yeah. basically, symbolically. She's, she's uh, you know, it's her version of Obara being forced to choose between the tears and, and the spear by Oberyn, as she'll relate in The Feast for Crows. And she, she chooses the belt. And she, she outright threatens Viserys at this point. So at chapter's end, you know, she's lost this chance at harmony between her two selves. So she embraces the child within her as the key to cultural and personal reconciliation. At the very kind of bittersweet little moment at the end of the chapter. She was lying there holding the egg when she felt the child move within her as if he were reaching out brother to brother, blood to blood. You are the dragon, Danny whispered to him. The true dragon. I know it. I know it. <laughs> And she smiled and went to sleep dreaming of home. And of course, that's very sad as a rereader because we know that Rago will not live. Yeah. And even the first time through, it's sad because you already know at this point that home for Danny is kind of this collection of memories and images and stories more than it is anything concrete. For Danny, home is something she has to keep constantly reinventing in her brain as much as it is something she wants to get back to. And I think that's kind of what this whole chapter is about, is, is trying to understand Vaes Dothrak and make it a home and make Viserys part of it and keep all these balls juggling. It's a difficult task, but Danny is committing to it with such kind of faith and passion that you, you really have to feel for her, even especially as it doesn't work. And you do have to wonder too, whether she's thinking of home as Westeros or thinking of home as the house with the red door and that kind yeah, of, exactly. it's, it's another conflict point in Daenerys's own heart that she constantly thinks of the house of the red door as being the only place where she was ever happy and that is home for her. That is something that she'll never have again. You know, this is this house of the red door is something that she is constantly thinking of and hearkening back to as, oh, everything was great and pure back then. If only I could return to that. If only I could take Dario back there at one point in, in the Dance with Dragons. We can live as man and wife together there. That's 
what she considers to be home, a place of safety, a place of comfort, a place where she can be loved and uh, and can be without the worries of the world that she has here. But maybe she's thinking of the House of the Red Door in terms of home, but maybe also, too, she's thinking of Westeros, which is not going to be so comforting, so happy, and will be so, you know, I mean, there will be certainly some triumphs, I think, in her when she comes to Westeros, but I don't think it will necessarily be an ultimately a happy place for her. But I think that about takes us to our likes and dislikes for the chapters. So, Emmett, what did you like about this chapter? Well, as we've said, obviously a lot of Danny Four is all about the world building, establishing various Dothraki's location, and exploring how Dothraki culture is kind of stamped on every bit of it. There's one detail in there that I especially enjoy because of how it relates to Danny's arc, as we've been talking about in her earlier chapters, her process of, of cultural literacy. Uh, when Cal Drogo finally uh, calls a halt, Danny smiled as she recalled Magister Illyrio's slave girl and her talk of a palace with 200 rooms and doors of solid silver. The <laughs> quote-unquote palace was a cavernous wooden feasting hall, its rough-hewn timbered walls rising 40 feet, its roof-sewn silk, a vast billowing tent that could be raised to keep out the rare rains or lowered to admit the endless sky. Again, that Dothraki obsession with everything being public, open, visible. Yes. Around the hall were broad, grassy horse yards fenced with high hedges, fire pits, and hundreds of round earthen houses that bulged from the ground like miniature hills covered with grass. So it's interesting. The stories about Drogo's palace were true, sort of, <laughs> as, as filtered through a culture Danny now understands better, that the, the palace is genuinely impressive. It's, you know, 40 feet walls. It's got this roof you can kind of, you know, open up or, or keep closed. It's got this entire living space around it for, for Drogo's men. But, so it's, it's, it's impressive. It's a show of strength and power like everything out in Vaestothrak. But if you're in the Free Cities or in Westeros, that translates to literal palace. Right. Because that's, that's how you understand power if you live in those places. That's how you understand splendor and magnificence. So, of course, you think that's how that would look. I think this passage helps us as readers measure the gap between who Danny was at the beginning of the book and who she is now halfway through it. In, in her first couple chapters, she had no choice but to just believe or disbelieve those rumors. Now she sees the real deal and understands, kind of with a wry sense of humor, the gap between the reality and the image. A part of me wonders if Martin has something similar in mind for Skagos, which of course has all these dread rumors surrounding it. You know, the unicorn cannibal island. Hmm. So I wonder if he has a similar yes, but also no approach in mind where some of the rumors are going to be confirmed to be true, but maybe not to the extent or maybe not in the way that people on the mainland think about it. It's been filtered through their own biases, just as the, the image of Cal Drago's uh, quote unquote palace was filtered through the free city cultural biases. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I do think that's going to be something we're going to see with Skagos when Davos comes into the island and sees that. Maybe not. Maybe people don't actually practice cannibalism there. Maybe that's something that was maybe practiced at one point in their history, but has been a tale that's been spread by modern Skagosi in order to maintain their semi-independent state of an island from the north and from the west of from the west from the rest of Westeros. So yeah, I think that's that's fantastic, and I think it's also really cool too. I mean, I, I kind of laughed with along with Danny when she was looking at the palace. Was like, wait, this is the palace? Are you sure? Are, are we positive? Right. Yeah, it it was, and I think it's cool that Danny's own own cultural own cultural biases are uh, being subverted by what she's actually experiencing in Vase Dothrak. I think that's cool, and I think what's also cool too about it is that Danny doesn't reject that as like and doesn't call it uh, doesn't do a Viserys type. Oh, it's, this isn't a palace. Right. This is just a log hall, you know. 
She actually, exactly. That's a great point. Yeah, she accepts she appreciates it. it. Yeah, and appreciates yeah. it. Yeah, and that's that's to her credit for sure. That's a distinction. Yeah. What about you, sir? What do you like about Danny for a Game of Thrones? Yeah. So, uh, so this is kind of a more more minor thing, but I, I really enjoy it. I like when George shows us that he's really well read, and here we see it as Rego reaches out to the dragon eggs as family in similar fashion to the in utero John the Baptist reaching out to his also in utero in utero cousin Jesus in Luke one forty one where the quote is, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, as much as George is kind of a agnostic or atheist, he, I respect that he knows his cultural references, even from a place like the Bible. And I think it's cool when he utilizes kind of those interesting and fun moments in the Bible for his own story. And kind of lifts some things also as well from different other cultural and literary things that have been written throughout the, the eons and the decades that he's been, eons and, and centuries that he's he's basing some of his story features from. Yeah, that's a great catch uh, as the relative filthy heathen on the podcast. <laughs> I, did, I did not notice the gospel showing up. But uh, yeah, that's I think that's definitely what Martin was going for. The, the leap in their womb is, is the exact same imagery. And uh, yeah, like I've been saying throughout this episode, there is definitely a very spiritual feeling to this location, to this chapter. To a lot of Danny's chapters, really. She's one of the more, along with Bran and uh, arguably Melisandre, she's one of the characters most connected to the religious side of things in the Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. And uh, we really, really only tipped our toes into that particular pool because we're going to get a lot more of Danny as a religious figure as this book proceeds and even more of it in Clash and Storm and Dance. Absolutely. So what you what, what did you dislike about this chapter? Okay, so I mean, the scene with Viserys basically has to exist. Yeah, you need it because you can't just go from Danny and Viserys having one confrontation to Viserys dying. You do need a little bit of connective tissue there. You need to ramp up the Targ versus Targ tension from the initial confrontation on the Dothraki Sea to his death in Danny's next chapter. Mm-hmm. It's the classic, you know, threefold kind of structure that Martin likes to use for twists, but also it's just basic story construction. Having said that. The dialogue and tone of this scene in Danny Four feels really repetitive to me. After Danny Three, it yep. part, partially just feels like the same scene to me. Basically, I have difficulty remembering exactly what was said and done in one. Viserys is just the worst scene versus <laughs> the other. They they they, they, they they get across the same point, so it does feel a little redundant. Yeah, uh, I'm in the same boat as you. My dislike is about Viserys as a character. He feels very one note villain to me. You know, I, I think that. The, the version of Viserys we saw in season one, Game of Thrones, played by Harry Lloyd, is a much more compelling portrait of a person. I like the added yep. scene from Bastards, Cripples, and Broken Things where Viserys bathes with Doria. And we see Viserys is a bit more human than we see here, where he's just kind of like, oh, these savages. And they don't even speak the real language. And it's just like, it just feels like, gosh, like Martin really wants us to hate this guy. And I get that we're supposed to hate him, but... You know, we hate Joffrey, but we don't we, – we also kind of – when he dies at the Purple Wedding, we're like, that sucks. I mean, like it's horrifying when and horrible when Cersei is like wailing for her son, watching her son die in front of him. As much as we hate Joffrey, we see that there's a emotional, pitiable aspect to him. And that's something that Harry Lloyd brings to the screen that I don't necessarily see in Viserys Targaryen the character from Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I agree. Harry Lloyd as Viserys is one of my favorite casting choices and performances on, on the show as a whole. And yeah, with Joffrey, there's an escalation. Like, his his behavior and the consequences of it steadily get worse. Like, you know, he starts out with Micah, and then you get to the execution of Ned and his general conduct in court and wanting to drown Dantos and having going from 
having Sansa beaten in private to doing it much more violently in front of everybody. Like, it can still feel kind of numbing after a while, but Martin steadily ramps up the, the stakes with Joffrey's behavior each time to make it feel like there's some genuine drama at work. This feels kind of like a rehash yep. uh, compared to compared to Danny 3 when she really first broke through. So yeah, for me, it's the least successful part of the chapter, and I agree. We could have used a little more humanity from the show and a little more just sense of... I mean, Viserys is ultimately a very pathetic figure. Yeah. But you need you need him to break a little bit more than this. Like, there's also the scene in the show that they added where he talks to Jorah about how lesser he feels compared to Danny now. Yeah. You kind of get that sense from the books, but I like that they made it a little more explicit in the show. I think that would just just layer in some more emotions. We're never going to like Viserys. Right. But I feel like we could understand him a little more than we do. Yeah. And that's that, I think that's the thing when you, you write villains is those those of you who are writing books out there and then I know there's a few of us a few of them a few of us actually in the, us, in the audience us Jeff you're in that number sure that you want to be able to, to write your villains as understandable Viserys here is I mean you kind of understand him he becomes much more interesting in the next Danny chapter where he's finally at the at that point where he's like oh I'm finally going to get what I wanted and he's like that's all I really wanted was just to get my yeah. my, my golden crown and that's a really cutting emotional scene but here just having him be like uh, be abusive verbally abusive and then physically abusive just as again a, a rehash of what we see in Danny Danny 3 Danny 2 and Danny 1 and now we're going to see it again in the fourth chapter but I think that about takes us into our foreshadowing and groundwork portion of the podcast. Uh, Emma, do you want to talk us through about this character that could potentially lead the Dothraki, someone stronger, and who could that possibly be? I don't know. Yes, this is going to lead neatly into our theory discussion for the episode, because, of course, the main brunt of foreshadowing and groundwork in A Game of Thrones Daenerys IV regards the oh. later role of Vice Dothraki. It's, it's role to come in The Winds of Winter, Yep, uh, as, as we will hopefully see one day. Um <laughs> What if it were not Viserys, she asked, and this is referring to leading the Dothraki to Westeros. What if it were someone else who led them, someone stronger? Oh, anyone you have in mind there, Danny? <laughs> who, who, who could this mysterious figure possibly be that would be leading the Dothraki? And speaking of which, you put that together with Jory's line about how uh, only the crones of the Dash Kaleen dwell permanently in the sacred city, them and their slaves and servants, yet Vais Dothrak is large enough to house every man of every Kalasar should all the cows return to the mother at once. The crones have prophesied that one day that will come to pass. And so Vaes Dothrak must be ready to embrace all its children. Well, yeah, again, I wonder who could be gathering all the mother's <laughs> children together. Surely not Misa, the mother of dragons. She doesn't no. have a lot of mother's symbolism surrounding her in the least. No, that wouldn't be perfectly appropriate. No. Uh, no. But well, that, of course, is basically just set up for our theory discussion for this episode, which is how do we think things are going to go in Vaes Dothrak and the Dothraki Sea as Danny has returned to it at the end of A Dance with Dragons and will be exploring it throughout the winds of winter. So, uh, Jeff, how would you kind of outline what you what you think is going to happen to the sacred city and the holy mountain going yeah. forward? Yeah, you know, we were talking about in pre-production how a lot of people have talked at some length about what Danny's arc is going to be like when she gets to Westeros, but I think it's going to be extraordinarily foundational to examine her first few chapters in the winds of winter. I expect maybe 2 to 4 chapters of hers will be set in Vase Dothrak or on the Dothraki Sea or both. And I think to, to kind of work our way backwards, 
Um, at the end of A Dance with Dragons, we see that Daenerys Targaryen encounters Khal Jaco and his Kalasar. That's the final lines from her 10th chapter from A Dance with Dragons. And that, of course, opens us up to what's going to happen in The Winds of Winter, where Daenerys is going to be on a bit of a Dothraki arc, so to speak. So we know that the Dothraki only follow the strong. That's something that is repeated uh, throughout the story. Uh, we also know that Daenerys' relationship with the Dothraki is very much soured by the end of A Game of Thrones when she refuses to go to the Dash Kaleen after Khal Drogo dies. The, essentially, her entire Kalasar abandons her and a few of her followers and heads for places unknown. One of the people that is the most prominent is the person that I mentioned before, Khal Jaco, and he had uh, he had took, taken a strong part of Drogo's Kalasar and, and Gone, to, gone north, essentially, to base Dothrak, and then is on his way south to Marine at the end of A Dance with Dragons, having, having been summoned there by the Yunkai with the expe- express promise of slaves from us, from sacking Marine. So, Jaco, Jaco's main blood rider is this guy that we know as uh, Mago. Mago, if you guys know from Game of Thrones Season 1, was a, the blood rider that Khal Drogo killed after the battle with the Lazarim, but he's actually still alive at, by the end of A Dance of Dragons. And George R. R. Martin has said that Mago is going to be, is not dead in the books. He's going to be a recurring character in The Winds of Winter. He's a particularly nasty blood rider to one of the other Khals that's broken away after Drogo dies. And why is he a nasty blood rider? Well, we see this at the end of Danny's arc in A Game of Thrones, where uh, Mago rapes a, a Lazarine woman that Daenerys protected by the name of Arua, and uh, Danny swears a bloody vengeance on this dude. And wouldn't you know it, but Jaco arrives at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and Jaco's main blood rider is, is, is Mago. So Danny's talking about swearing bloody vengeance against this guy. Jaco shows up, and Mago will be there too, and he'll be a recurring character in The Winds of Winter. I do kind of wonder Mago whether Mago is going to serve a purpose of kind of being a minor antagonist to Daenerys throughout her winds, early winds arc to the Dothraki. I don't think that Danny is just going to incinerate him immediately. It, it kind of feels like from reading George's wording that this guy is going to be around for a little bit. Maybe he will be the character that will be leading kind of the anti-Daenerys faction among the Dothraki up in Vase Dothrak and throughout Essos. I'm not sure. What are, you, what are your thoughts on Mego? I, I don't know if I've ever asked you that before. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, Daenerys's storyline in the Winds of Winter is already so chock full of different advisor characters for her to deal with, even beyond the Dothraki. You've got Tyrion, Makuro, Marwyn the Mage, uh, the Widow of the Waterfront, the Tattered Prince. Mm-hmm. Quaith is presumably going to do a thing. You can, you can tell my enthusiasm for Quaith <laughs> as a character by how I said that. Not really fond of Quaith. Nope. But yeah, Mego, I think he could definitely lead an anti-Dothraki faction. He could force Danny into position to show off her fire and blood or just to make an affirmative case to the Dothraki beyond just kneel or be burned. And I also wonder, like, I think about how the character of Mero, the Titan's bastard, yep. the first commander of the Second Sons, is basically there in order for Barristan to be an utter badass and kill him, <laughs> thus proving he, he he can't possibly just be Arston Whitebeard. Yep. I wonder if Mego will serve a similar role in that one of the other characters in Danny's storyline will prove themselves to her somehow or make themselves known by stopping Mego from, from killing her or doing some dastardly plot. Yeah. Like maybe that's how Marwyn the Mage gets introduced to her. Maybe that's how the Red Priests or even Tyrion like or make themselves known to Danny, and that gets them to, to trust her. It gets her to trust them. Or maybe even like Jorah has something to do with uh, stopping Mago and his Dothraki, yeah. and that's what restores Danny's relationship to him. 
So I think I feel like Mago might be a, a, a useful character spurring Danny's storyline that way. Uh, but yeah, like as, as George says, um, he's he's going to be a recurring character in Wins, which sounds like he's just more than just getting incinerated right away. Um, and he did, see, did say on the Nada blog back in 2012 uh, that he was writing about the Dothraki, indicating that's definitely a central part of the Wins of Winter. Although he also said, more than that, I sayeth not, you know I don't like to talk about this stuff. <laughs> yes, we know that, George. We know yes, that now in do. 2018. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I think... Uh, you know, to kind of Mago is going to be really interesting, but kind of to take that, go from that kind of ground level view to the ten thousand foot view. In Danny's final chapter in A Dance of Dragons, there's a really great scene where Daenerys is flying on Drogon, and she finally learns to stop controlling him with whips and chains. She controls him just kind of I don't know the best way you would. They have some sort of connection now, the draconic yes, connection, a with, psychic bond kind of thing. There you go, the Wolves. Yeah, there you go. Yep. And so there's a great quote there, which I think is going to be very much indicative and, and very much a metaphor for what's going to be happening between Daenerys and the Dothraki and the Winds of Winter. And that is, a vast herd of horses appeared below them. There were riders too, a score or more, but they turned and fled at the first sight of the dragon. The horses broke and ran when the shadow fell upon them. Shadow fell upon them, that's important. Racing through the grass until their sides were white with foam, tearing the ground with their hooves. But as swift as they were, they could not fly. Soon as one horse began to lag behind the others, the dragon descended on him, roaring, and all at once the poor beast was aflame. Yet somehow he kept on running, screaming with every step, until Drogon landed on him and broke his back. So, to me that reads very much as a metaphor for what's going to happen between Daenerys and the Dothraki, that there will be significant conflict between them, but Daenerys has a motherfucking dragon, so the Dothraki could have 100,000 riders there, and they can try and run away as fast as they can. And that's something that is brought up in this chapter and from Daenerys 4 about how the Dothraki have the ability to shoot and move quickly on horses. But that advantage is negated when you have a dragon flying overhead. So I think that Daenerys is going to break the back of the Dothraki and break them and be the stallion amounts the world, which is going to be something we're going to be seeing significantly in Daenerys 5, where that prophecy is spoken by the Dash Kaleen. I think that prophecy is not intended for Rago. I think that prophecy is very much intended for Daenerys Targaryen. And Daenerys being the stallion who mounts the world has an implication for Westeros, obviously, but it also has an implication for the Dothraki as well. One of the things that's brought up by uh, by Emmett's favorite character, Quaith says, to go north, you must go south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Again, pass beneath the shadow, connected again to that line from Daenerys 10. But... What Quaith, as much as she's, as much as she's eye rolly, uh, what she's indicating here is what's seemingly going to happen to Daenerys' arc in the Winds of Winter, meaning that to reach the west, you must go east. That is her going to Vaisithrak. To go forward, you must go back. Then to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. So uh, my interpretation of of that line, to go forward, you must go back, means that in order for Daenerys to go to Westeros, she has to go back to Vaes Dothrak and go back to the Dothraki. She's been apart from them now for four books, ever since the end of A Game of Thrones, although she has a small contingent. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Well, to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Again, that line is important. What would be the thing that would be the biggest shadow in you know, in Danny's arc. And that would probably be the Mother Mountains, the Holy Mountains, so to speak, in mm-hmm. from this chapter from mm-hmm. the Game of Thrones, Daenerys 4. And then we have that line from Danny's House of the Undying Vision. Beneath the Mother Mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, her being Daenerys, their gray heads bowed. So 
what is that line all about? And for this, I have to credit Aziz from History of Westeros, who had put this on a podcast probably like five years ago at this point, where he had said something to the effect of, you know, the the crones might be jumping into the Great Lake in order to evade Danny's dragon fire. That might be the only way to evade being burned by Daenerys Targaryen. Again, sure. from this chapter, you can't bring weapons into Vase Dothrak, but there's no line about bringing dragon fire and bringing dragons into Vase Dothrak. That doesn't seem to be against the uh, the customs of, of the Dothraki. Again, it's one of those things that might be skirting the rules, something that Khal Drogo is very much going to do in the next Danny chapter. And I do think that the line of naked crones would then kneel before Daenerys in order to show their submission to Danny and to demonstrate that Dothraki are going to be submitting to Daenerys Targaryen as the Khaleesi of Khals. And that's something that I think is going to be very much um, going to be probably be the conclusion of Danny's Dothraki arc before she turns either south towards Marine or Yunkai or turns west towards Volantis and meets her party midway through. I guess I guess it's something that I'm, I'm curious about the mechanics of how George is going to be transitioning between the different kind of arcs in Danny's journey in the Winds of Winter. Yeah, I think that's definitely the escalation there. She goes from her personal vendetta against uh, Cal Jaco and his Kalasar, and then turns to Vase Dothrak to kind of unite all all Dothrak into one Kalasar to her back and fulfill that religious archetype. As I said, Danny's going to be filling a lot of kind of religious myths and narratives in the books going forward, not just among the Dothraki, but also regarding Azor High and the prince that was promised. And yeah, I agree that the Dashkalin were wrong. That was Rago, who was the stallion. It was, in fact, the woman around him, Daenerys. <laughs> and uh, I think that has a strong parallel to what Aemon was talking about with the myth of the prince that was promised and how everyone assumed that it had to be right. a man, a prince. Exactly. And no one ever looked for a girl. And what fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. I think the Dashkalin made the exact same mistake. And we're going to see Dany actually fulfill both of those prophecies. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, that's, it'll go from Jaquo to, to Vaes to Throck. And then, uh, I think the, the rule that is, is set up in this chapter that only men were permitted to climb the mother of mountains, uh, is, is going to be broken by Daenerys. She'll be yep. the first woman to, to go atop it. And we'll see the, the awesome imagery of Danny and Drogo atop that mountain, <laughs> uh, come, come the winds of winter. And then, yeah, she'll, she will have all the Dothraki at her back the first time that has, that has been accomplished, and you can see uh, hints in that direction from the World of Ice and Fire in the Dothraki section. Uh, quote, Wiser men know that it is only a matter of time until the Kalasars unite again under some great cal and turn west once more in search of mm-hmm. new conquests. Mm, whatever that and means. All, exactly. And also, uh, one day all the Kalasars shall gather together once more beneath the banners of the great cal who will conquer all, the stallion who mounts the world. So that's that's what uh, I think we'll be seeing like the first, you know, third or so of Danny's Winds of Winter arc will be devoted to fulfilling that. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's going to be the case. I think more than anything, I think a lot of fans dismiss Vase Dothrak kind of in similar fashion to how they dismiss Marine for Danny and its importance in crafting sure, Daenerys sure. and who she is. And I think it's important when we reread these chapters from A Game of Thrones that we get the sense of the identity that Daenerys is forging because it never leaves her. Of course, it kind of shifts and morphs as she progresses outside of Vase Dothrak into the Red Waste towards Karth, then down through the, through the slave cities and ultimately a marine, and then back up to Vase Dothrak, or, or back up to the Dothrak you see at the end of A Dance of Dragons. I think these things, it shifts, but it's still an integral part of her identity. She is still a Khaleesi. It is still one of the titles that she gives herself. So it still is an integral part of her identity, and it's going to play a huge part in The Winds of Winter. And one of the things I think is going to be really interesting about that is what it's going to do for Danny's identity. 
Now, the Dothraki, if you guys have been listening to this podcast, they're kind of mixed, right? I mean, there's some good things about them, but there's also bad things about them, too. They're conquerors, they're looters, they're plunderers. All those gods and those statues of the heroes that we see in this chapter are demonstrating the, the, the Dothraki's incredible ability to exact destruction on their enemies. Ultimately, I think that the Dothraki will be necessary for Danny's conquest of Westeros. But, you know, as we saw in Game of Thrones Season 7, when the Dothraki fight in that great second field of fire, it's not a moment of triumph, really. I never watched that. I mean, it's a great episode. It's a great battle scene. But I never watched that episode, saw that battle scene and thought, man, finally, the Dothraki, they're finally doing good things. Because it's horrifying to watch people burn to death. It's horrifying to watch people being cut down by Arax. And these are Lannisters, people that we're not necessarily sympathetic to in the story. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think the, the Dothraki will give Danny access to that pure kind of unchecked power she's been looking for for both good and ill and kind of got frustrated by in Slaver's Bay. I think, you know, she wants to cut the Gordian knot and, and free all the slaves, but also destroy all her enemies. And uh, the, the Dothraki will will provide her a vessel for doing that but it's it's she's gonna the, these issues of kind of culture clash and assimilation we've been talking about in this chapter are gonna be put in a much more uh, violent and messianic context yes come the winds of winter and uh, Veas Dothrak I think is going to be a centerpiece of that I think Volantis is going to be as well as we discussed in our Patreon episode on Volantis <laughs> on how Danny will be drawn into the orbit of the Relorite priests that have their glorious red temple there but it will again be a case of Danny bringing her identities together, but instead of just trying to navigate this culture to survive day to day as she is in the Game of Thrones, it'll be about fulfilling religious prophecy and taking on leadership roles over entire cultures. Yeah. And in the Dothraki's case, I think, yeah, that'll, that'll be the culminating moment, as you said, will be at face Dothrak uh, when the Dashkalines submit to her before the Mother of Mountains. And that that is definitely going to be a hell of an image to witness. It is that. But the question you're going to have to ask yourself is, in, is Westeros going to take the Viserys role? You know, right. taking Viserys as being the person who rejects the Dothraki as savages. Is Westeros going to be rejecting Daenerys as a savage because she's leading Dothraki? She's practicing R'hllor or has a number of R'hllorite followers under her. She has the Ironborn with her too. The people that Westeros universally despises and hates because they've gone to war with everyone like the smart genius strategists that they are. It's it's going to be fascinating to see. I think that Westeros may end up taking on the Viserys role towards Daenerys Targaryen. But we'll have to see as we will find out from the Winds of Winter coming out next week. Next week, absolutely it is. So that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Daenerys 4. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed. As always, you can uh, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, check out our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF. Uh, once again, we're going to be doing our Patreon episode for November on the uh, on Fire and Blood Volume 1 and Martin's uh, reading tour about it in, in <laughs> Jersey City. This is the little one-stop tour with right. John Hodgman. That's going to that's gonna be a delight. And uh, our, our October one is going to be a Stop the Chumps Part 2, the second part of our epic episode where we answer your questions. So check out our Patreon if you have not already, and become a, a supporter for $5 or up a month to get access to those special episodes. Otherwise, on social media, you can follow us at notacastasoiaf on Twitter, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me at Port Quentin or at portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish, 
Brennan Vifish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics Spice and Fire.wordpress.com. So join us next week as we check in back at Winterfell. Haven't been back there in a minute, and meet our first wildlings in a Game of Thrones brand five. Looking forward to it. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Have a good week. See ya.